Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? As generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we've now read your word and we're going to consider it, God, we would pray that you would speak to us and minister to us and teach us from these scriptures. Lord, we pray that as we've just read a introduction and a poem here at the beginning of this book, that you would give us understanding. Lord, that not only would we gain understanding, but that we would also have by your spirit a God-given desire to apply by faith the teachings here in this book. Lord, we pray that you would lead us into the path of wisdom as we journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Often misunderstood, definitely a challenging book to interpret but loaded with so much practical wisdom for life. And Lord, we want to be wise people. We want to be the kind of women and men who live life the way that it's supposed to be lived, that live life in a way that honors and glorifies you. And so we believe that we need this book, we need all scripture to help equip us to live life the way that you've designed it. So guide us into truth today. Guide us into wisdom today, we would ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Christian philosopher Ravi Zacharias organizes all philosophical questions into four basic categories. The first category is questions of origin. In other words, how did we get here? The second category is questions of meaning. Why are we here? The third category is questions of morality, or how should we live our lives? And the fourth and final category is questions of destiny. Where are we going from here? What's, what's after the things that we're experiencing now? So questions of origin, meaning, morality, or destiny. And any philosophy or worldview or ideology or belief system must address those questions if it hopes to... Uh, be the type of 
worldview or philosophy that is worthy of our time and our allegiance. Now, the second category there helps us to see that meaning matters. People have always asked themselves questions like, what is the purpose of my life? Or, does what I'm doing with my life actually matter? Is there meaning here in the madness of what I'm doing? Thus, if you were to read the Stoic philosophers of the ancient world, for them, the meaning of life was to be the type of person who had self-mastery and could remain unaffected by the circumstances of life. You were able to just withstand them and it didn't really impact you one way or another. Or if you read the Epicureans, for them, the meaning of life was pleasure. So Epicurean philosophy would say, if it feels good, go for it. Do it. It was a, 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 a headlong pursuit into pleasure and whatever felt good. And even today, if you were to read or listen to the popular atheists who, of course, deny that any purpose or meaning has been woven into the fabric of our lives, they hesitate to say that, well, because of that, your life doesn't matter. And so for them, they want to say that the meaning of life is to... Uh, the meaning of life is to make the world a better place in some way, shape, or form. And one of the most popular Christian cliches over the past 25 years or so is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And although I believe that's not the most helpful way of stating things, it does point to the truth that Christians believe that there is meaning in our earthly existence. We can look at any person and say that in a sense, yes, God has a plan for all of our lives. And that's why the opening statement in verse 2 of Ecclesiastes is so shocking for Christians. And quite frankly, so confusing. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The problem's even worse if you have the New International Version translation of the Bible. There it renders it meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What? What is going on here? Is, is, this, is this the Bible? Yes, it is the Bible. It's smack dab in the middle of our sacred scriptures. So what does the author mean here when he begins this book with this statement, this declaration that everything is meaningless? To begin answering that question, we need to get some background on this important book of the Bible. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is part of what's called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In the middle of the Old Testament, you've got five books, the wisdom literature, which are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. For many Christians, this is their favorite part of the Old Testament. Because unlike some of the historical books that are talking about wars and battles and nations and things like that, the wisdom literature gets very personal. And it talks about human experience, and it's very relatable for us as believers. In this particular book, the book of Ecclesiastes, what we have is an, an author who's taking us on a journey into the meaning of life. And what's so fascinating about it is he's inviting each and every one of us as readers into his own quest to make sense of the world in, all the, or in the midst of all of his experiences, pursuits, and the absurdities of life. And in doing so, he on several occasions brings himself, as well as all of us, all of us who are reading, to the brink of hopelessness and despair 
before offering us a way forward in this elusive and confusing world we call earth. I titled this sermon series, so the whole series of the book of Ecclesiastes, Finding Meaning in the Madness. Finding Meaning in the Madness. Because this is what the author is going to help us do. Look at life as it actually is, with all of its absurdities, all of the things that don't seem to make sense, and he's trying to draw meaning from the madness. Now, Many believers love the book of Proverbs, and rightfully so. The book of Proverbs, you could say, depicts life as it ought to be, and generally is. So when you read the book of Proverbs, this is what life should be like. This is the way things should work, and they generally do. The book of Ecclesiastes depicts life as it actually is. So in Proverbs, the question could be, do you want to be successful? Or do you want to have a blessed life? And all of us, of course, would say, yes, I do. And so Proverbs would say, okay, then live this way. Do these things and you will have a blessed life. Ecclesiastes comes along and says, well, what about when that doesn't work out? What about when you do all the right things, when you try to live a wise life, when you try to live a godly life and the bottom falls out and things don't work out the right way? What happens when the righteous are punished or the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? How do we fit that into our theology? How do we navigate through those complexities in life? That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is going to get to. One of the reasons that I chose this book is because even though it's several thousand years old, It speaks right to the issues that I believe so many of us that live in the modern West are asking ourselves and are dealing with. And that's because, as the author puts it in verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. He talks about many of the pursuits that, that most people, and especially most young people, are interested in. Things like making tons of money, things like achieving status or even international fame, uh, living for pleasure, hard work, striving after knowledge and wisdom. He also talks about a lot of the issues that most people are wondering about, such as life and death and the afterlife, injustice and oppression in the world, and the many things in life that just don't seem to add up, the things that make people stop and go, how could a God of love fill in the blank? Ecclesiastes offers us a pretty thorough view on life. Now, one of the cool things about this book is that the author is writing from his old age and he's speaking from his own extensive life experience on the issues that he's going to talk about. And I'm glad that he does this because in life, it's a lot easier to take advice from somebody who has actually walked through the things that they're talking about. Now, when I was growing up, I played a lot of sports. And I was on several teams throughout my childhood where I had a coach who didn't actually ever play the sport. And I know for me as an athlete, it was always harder for me to receive instruction from coaches who had never played the sport. Because they tell you, oh, this is how you need to do this. This is is the right play to make in this situation. And maybe this was just my pride and youthfulness. But you'd look at him and go, well, how would you know? You've never even been there. I always appreciated and felt like I responded better to coaches who themselves had played the sport. And life is sort of like that. Again, in life, most of us receive wisdom and teaching and learning better from somebody who's actually been in our shoes. 
Well, the author of this book book, can speak to us about all kinds of topics and issues in life because he's been there, he's done that, and he's bought the t-shirt. So who is the author? Well, the book starts off by introducing him in verse 1. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. He calls himself the preacher, or some translations would say teacher. The Hebrew word there literally means to assemble or to gather. And so uh, the author of this book sees himself as one who is gathering the people of God or assembling together the people of God, thus the translation preacher or teacher of the people. Next we see that this author is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, as many of you know, the son of David, who was the king in Jerusalem, was Solomon. And Solomon is the author that is traditionally credited with writing the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is that? Well, one clue comes in verse 12, where he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. Um, After Solomon's reign, the kingdom was split in half. A northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. And those who reigned over the northern kingdom called Israel were not ruling in the city of Jerusalem. They ruled from the city of Samaria. It was the southern kingdom of Judah that had its kings sit in Jerusalem. And so for the author of this book to say that he is the the king over Israel from the city of Jerusalem seems to suggest that this is, in fact, King Solomon. Not only that, the character depicted in this story or in this book fits perfectly with what we know about King Solomon and his life. And we'll unpack that a little bit more in here. Either way, the author of this book wants us to look at the character in the story, the man on the journey who is teaching us as a Solomon-like figure. Because after all, Solomon had the unique position of supreme wisdom from his own experience. If you know nothing of King Solomon, you should know this. Solomon was the king over a very powerful and prosperous nation, the nation of Israel. What that means for us is that Solomon had more wealth, more status, more power, uh, more privilege than any of us could ever fathom. Like ever. No matter what you do in your life, you will never be a supreme monarch with absolute authority over a nation that is wealthy and prosperous and strong. Solomon literally had the world at his fingertips. And because of that, he took advantage of it. And he explored the world and everything in it. And now, in his old age, is distilling the wisdom that he gained through his pursuits. This book begins then, as we already mentioned, after introducing the author with the startling assessment of life found in verse 2. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if you are a note taker, you should jot down that word vanity. This is the, the key word to this whole book. The word vanity. The Hebrew word is hebel, H-E-B-E-L. And this this word is going to appear almost 40 times in these 12 chapters. This constant refrain of Solomon here, vanity, 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 life is vanity. The Hebrew word hebel 
literally means a vapor or it means breath. Um, and again, it becomes for us the key word in this entire book. So the word is supposed to make us think of, again, your breath. Your breath on a cold day, you see it for a moment, disappears. Or maybe think of smoke or fog or a mist that you see. That's what Hebel is. According to the Jesus Bible, this word Hebel resonates with other scripture, scripture passages that emphasize the inherent worthlessness of things that don't last. From the temporary lives of mortals to idols and false worship practices. So this word resonates with worthlessness in this world. There's some scripture references that should be on the screen in a moment here. Because of that, meaningless is a helpful translation here in verse 2, which again the NIV gets for us. This translation, meaningless. Oftentimes when he's using this word in the scriptures, he's pointing to the fact that life appears to be meaningless. That's the way that we experience it. Or life and its pursuits are worthless. They have no real significance. But as we're going to see in the book, Solomon often uses this word hebel to draw other important ideas related to a vapor or smoke and then applying them to life. So he uses the word hebel at times to communicate that life is short, to communicate the brevity of life. He's going to want you to think of, again, to use your breath as an example on a cold day, he's going to want you to think of how when you breathe on a cold day, you see hebel for a moment, and as quickly as you see it, it dissipates, it's gone. And he's going to say that life is like that. It's fleeting, it's here for a moment, and then it's gone. He's also going to use hebel to communicate that life is elusive. Have you ever tried to grab smoke? Have you ever tried to grab your breath on a cold day? Even though you see it, the moment you try to grab it, you realize you can't. It's elusive. It can never actually be attained or grasped. And he's going to use Hebel that way to describe life and our experiences of life, that as we seek to grasp after things in this world, oftentimes it evaporates in your fingers. It's just Hebel. They'll say it's like striving after wind. It's the person running after wind. You can't ever grab it. That's how life is. Finally, he's going to use this word hebel at times in this book to talk about how life is mysterious. It's mysterious. Have you ever tried to drive your car in really, really dense fog before? Or have you ever been in a room that was filled with smoke? If you've been in one of those experiences, you'll, you'll know that in those moments, things are no longer clear. Everything becomes fuzzy and hard to see and discern. And it becomes disorienting and confusing. That's how life can be. Life is at times mysterious and we can't quite make sense of the things we're experiencing. Well, here is the theme of the book. Everything is Hebel. And in this context, everything is meaningless. It's utterly meaningless. Okay, Debbie Downer. <laughs> Sounds like a real fun guy, huh? If you're throwing a Super Bowl party, do not invite Solomon. I want you to notice, though, this is really important, that verse 2 is not Solomon's 
conclusion to the question of the book, but rather it's an opening of it. In other words, this isn't Solomon's final evaluation about life. It's his initial assessment. He's saying everything is vanity or meaningless. This is his initial assessment. And with this assessment, now Solomon is inviting us into his own journey so that we can wrestle with him about how someone as wise as Solomon could make such a statement. Why is everything meaningless? Well, let's continue into verse 3. This becomes the key question. So vanity is the key word. Verse 3 becomes the key question that Solomon's going to explore. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, Solomon is sitting back and he's saying, what benefit, what advantage, what gain do we actually have for all of the energy we expend, all of the activity that we do, all of the work that we devote ourselves to in our earthly lives? Is there any payoff here? Is it all worth it at the end of the day? Now, we would expect the Christian answer to be, yes, totally worth it, absolutely. But Solomon doesn't go there. Instead, in this opening poem, he is going to say that everything is meaningless because your life is meaningless. Hence the title of my sermon this morning. You don't matter. Bet you're glad you're at church today. I know pastors are supposed to say kind things, but you don't matter. That's what Solomon is going to teach us today. Okay, why don't we matter? Let's turn our attention to the remainder of this poem. Starting in verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Solomon says, listen. The earth is constant. The earth was here long before you got here. And the earth is going to be here long after you go. Generations come, generations go, and it's this endless cycle. People live, they die. Their children grow up and live and die. Their children grow up and live and die. Our life is like a roller coaster ride. Okay, that roller coaster was in the park before you showed up in the morning, and that roller coaster is still going to be going around in that park long after you leave. The only thing that changes is the riders. That's what life is like. The earth has been doing its thing for a very long time, and you're here for a blip on the radar screen. You are hebel. You're a vapor of smoke that's here for a moment, and then you are swept away forever. Now in verse 5, he's going to point out that nature appears to be cyclical. Again, a roller coaster going around and around and around. He says the sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Solomon's looking at nature and he's saying, look, it's cyclical. For all of the activity and the energy that it appears the sun is expending, as it goes around on its circuit day after day after day, nothing actually changes. 
for all of the activity and energy expended by the wind blowing around on its circuits day after day after day. It doesn't actually stop. It never gets where it seems to be going and it doesn't change a thing. For every river flowing to the ocean, the ocean never actually fills up. All of that water gushing into the ocean from our perspective, doesn't change a single thing. And Solomon looks at all of this, and in verse 8, he sees it as a great picture of what human experience is like, and he says to himself, all of it is weariness. All of this is exhausting to sit and think about. All of this is exhausting to sit and live through where we, like the sun, are going around and around and around on these cyclical patterns and nothing actually happens. We don't get anywhere. We don't achieve anything. We pick up where we left off. Atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell describes this same feeling of despair in his autobiography as he looked out at the world as he saw it. He said, we stand on the shore of an ocean crying to the night and the emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it is the voice of one drowning. And in a moment, the silence returns. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of most people is very great, and I often wonder, often wonder how they all endure it. I suppose if they did not live most of the time in the things of the moment, they would not be able to go on. Russell's basically saying if they weren't just distracting themselves with all of these daily things, these little trinkets, they would be given over to despair. If they would stop and do what the preacher's doing here and sit back and evaluate life for what it actually is, it's just a trip around the sun, trip around the sun, trip around the sun, us doing the same things and not getting anywhere, they wouldn't be able to go on, is what he's saying. The preacher here sees that our lives are filled with activity, but it never really gets us anywhere. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, he says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So we go around and around in life, never satisfied, always trying to get to that next thing that we think is going to be a new thing, an exciting thing, a thing that actually delivers, a thing that breaks up the monotony of our experience. And so we plan the greatest vacation, we shift our career, we get a new spouse, we do all these different things because we're trying to break up the monotony of human experience. And Solomon is saying the eye is never satisfied with what it sees. Your ear is never going to be filled with what it hears. No experience is going to deliver. We're always back to the same place. Now, when you're young, you think to yourself, you know what? I can't wait till I'm done with school. Once I get out of school and I can actually get a job and get into my career and start doing what I want to do, then I'm going to be happy. Then you get there and you're working and you go, well, you know what? Once I can get that promotion and kind of get a little bit of seniority in my company and start making some real money, I'm going to feel content. I'll be happy. I'll be satisfied. Then you get to that point and you realize you're not and you say, you know what? Maybe if I could find a spouse and I could get married, then I would be happy. Then you find the spouse and you get married and you say, you know what, if we could get out of this one bedroom, one bath apartment, we would be happy if we bought our own place, which is never going to happen for you in Santa Barbara if you're under 30 right now. So just dismiss the idea. But you think if we just had our own house, we would be happy. And then you have your house and you think to yourself, 
Well, if we could just have children, that would give our lives meaning and we'd be so happy to be able to raise children and love them so you have children. Then you think to yourself, if we could just get rid of the children, get them out of our house, have our lives back, then we would be happy. And we never actually arrive. This is life. This is the way that Solomon is depicting life for us. You and I, like nature, are on a perpetual merry-go-round. I mean, think of your daily routine. Maybe you wake up at 6.30, you have breakfast, brush your teeth, get dressed. You head off to your job on your commute. You go sit at your job. You work for four hours maybe, and then it's lunchtime. You go out and you eat a meal, probably with the same people you eat a meal with every day of the week. Afterward, you go back to work for a few more hours. Then you get off work. You head to the gym, or you think about going to the gym. You probably don't. Then you get home. You eat some dinner. You sit down, and you watch Netflix for an hour, and you pass out. And then you wake up on Tuesday, and guess what Tuesday is going to look like? It's a cycle. It's cyclical. Well, no, 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 no. My life's exciting. We go on vacation twice a year. Yeah, you do. Every year. You just get away for like two weeks. And this is what life is like. In verses 9 and 10, Solomon's going to point out that history itself always repeats. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? He says, it has already been done in the ages before us. There are always going to be wars to be fought. There are always people who are mistreated. There are always governments that change. There are ideas that are recirculated. He summarizes his point. There is nothing new under the sun. G.K. Chesterton said it well. He said, all new news is old news happening to new people. It's true. Nothing new under the sun. Now, of course, when he says there's no new thing, he doesn't mean that technology doesn't advance, that we don't make progress in that sense. Um, of course, technologies develop. But what he's pointing out is that for human civilization, there are no new issues. There are no new temptations. There are no new circumstances. There are no new issues. The people change, the technologies advance, but the issues are the same. Finally, in verse 11, Solomon's going to bring us to the greatest absurdity of all. There is no remembrance, he writes, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Solomon is saying that everything about you, everything about everything you do in your life, Everything about every person or thing that right now in this moment you love with all of your heart is going to be buried in the sands of time. No one will remember it. That's his point. I know the under 30 crowd is like, not me! I'm going to make a name for myself. People are going to remember who I am. Really? I want to try something. If you know the first name of both of your great-grandparents and their occupation, raise your hand. Great-grandparents, 
their first names and their occupation. Raise your hand. Great. I mean, there might be six, seven hands in here. Your great-grandparents, that's not very long ago. These are the people who literally held your parents in their arms. They were their grandparents. And probably for several years helped to raise their lives. We are their family. We don't even remember their first names. We don't even remember what they did with the best hours and energies of their human life. What about your great-great-grandparents or another generation beyond that? Nathan must have his family tree detailed on Ancestry.com. I mean, he's just like, I got it, dude. I know it all. But think about that. We are their family. 200 years from right now, nobody is going to remember you. Even the people that you love the most. Even the people that you think you're leaving something to. Well, but Daniel, we remember some people from history. Alexander the Great, we know who he was. Julius Caesar, Confucius, we know people from history, that's true. But here's what I would say to that. Scientists assure us that one day the sun is going to burn out. And when that happens, this tiny little planet that we live on is going to be lifeless and it's probably going to turn into cosmic dust and the universe will not care about anything you've ever done. It will not remember you and all of the effort of your life will not change a thing in this universe. That's harsh. But it's true. The universe doesn't care about you. Hence my title, You Don't Matter. It's harsh, but it's true. If this life is all that there is, you really don't matter. Everything that you've got going on right now is complete meaninglessness. Christianity is just brave enough to tell you and kind enough, hence my subtitle, The Kindness of Christian Realism. Pastor Tim Keller said, if your origin is insignificant and if your destiny is insignificant, then have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant. If we are just accidents heading for annihilation, then nothing we do matters, end quote. Well, I can't just say, God bless you, have a great day. So let's tie this thing together. I mean, where do we go from here? What do we do with this poem that Solomon gives to us in this first chapter? Because he doesn't give us a pretty little bow yet to kind of like tie things together with. Let me give us two points of application before we close. Number one, a cyclical view of history is hopeless. A cyclical view of history is hopeless. That's what he's telling us. If generations just come and go and that's the end of it, then life, as we've been saying, is desperately meaningless. But the Christian gospel teaches us that although history appears to be cyclical, history is actually linear. God created us in the beginning, and human history is going full speed ahead, headlong toward recreation and restoration at the return of Christ. And so as we're going to see in this book, because God exists, everything that you do in your life is actually incredibly significant. 
Solomon is going to help us see that every single thing you do, every deed, every action is going to be brought into judgment by God himself. And God is going to scrutinize and evaluate every detail of your life. Whereas the universe doesn't care about you. The God who created you actually does. And he's looking at everything you're doing in your life. And he is going to reward or punish us accordingly for all of eternity. So you could say, far from your life being meaningless, your life is eternally significant. Everything you are doing right now matters because God, is, God exists and it matters to him. He created you and he infused your life with meaning despite how the rat race and monotony of your nine to five might feel. Number two, second application. Basing our identity or significance on what others think or how others are going to remember you is hopeless. Because as we've seen in this poem, they're not going to remember. You're here and you're gone like breath. It's like that. And your life will be forgotten. So if you spend your life building your identity, rooting your identity in what other people think about you, or what future generations are going to think of you. This is hopeless. It's meaningless. That's not the most important thing. And God never encourages us to base our identity on that, on people's opinions. Rather, God wants us to base our identity on his opinion, on what he says about you. And according to the Bible, God created every person in his own image. Therefore, all life is intrinsically and immensely valuable and precious. And not only that, but through the work of Christ, God wants to bring you into right relationship with himself, into a loving relationship with himself that begins the moment you put your faith in Christ and continues for all of eternity. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, far from being meaningless or insignificant, your life matters to God. It matters so much that God the Father sent God the Son to this earth 2,000 years ago on a rescue mission to bring you back from your sins deliver you from your sins, and bring you into a loving relationship with himself for all of eternity. There could be no greater identity. There could be no higher status attainable for a human being than to become a child of God by faith. Basing your identity here fills every day of life with immense meaning because your best days are always ahead of you. So the grand message for this morning is that if you take God out of the equation, your life doesn't matter. But because God is in the equation, your life is deeply significant. And you're only going to, you're only going to come to experience the true meaning of your life and experience true significance in your life when you pull yourself out of the rat race that all of us seem to be in in this life and instead, plug yourself into the God who made you and loves you and knows you. And when you do that, life begins to have incredible meaning 
and significance, and there is much joy to be had in life under the sun. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this amazing book, the book of Ecclesiastes. And even though we've just barely gotten into the first chapter, by your grace, we're already starting to see some of the incredible wisdom that the pages of this book afford to us. So Lord, I would pray that you would continue to cause us to be people who are receiving this wisdom, who are embracing this wisdom, and who are applying it to our lives. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would, as a result of what we've studied in these 11 verses, resist the impulse to look to anything under the sun to find meaning and significance in or to base our identity on. But rather, Lord, we pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you would empower us to look beyond life under the sun to life in the sun, the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. And as we do, that all of our life would be infused with the, the meaning and the significance that you intend for us to experience this side of eternity. Lord, I pray that if there are any among us who, perhaps like Bertrand Russell was talking about, are trying to distract themselves with so many momentary experiences because were they to actually sit down and consider life for all that it is, as Solomon has done this morning, it would lead to despair. I pray, Lord, that this morning, this dose of realism would come to them as a kindness, a kindness of God, that you love them so much that you don't want them to continue to live out their existence in a deception. You want them to see life for what it really is. If there's no God, nothing actually matters. But because you are here and you do exist, everything actually matters. And so, Lord, we pray for any brothers or sisters who are here this morning who do not yet know you, that today you would be drawing them to faith in your son, Jesus, that they might enjoy life and that in an abundance. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to close with a song of worship so that we can once again redirect our hearts on the good news of the gospel and the love of God that is ours in Christ. So let's worship now.